I'm Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson to bring you an update on what happened last night at school committee. Good morning, Ross. Good morning, Jill. Everything good over there in Charlestown? Everything is good. We're uh, continuing our virtual learning um, until June 22nd. It's fantastic. Well, let's start. It's been a sad and troubling week, very intense. And the school committee members started last night's meeting by reflecting on the national and local events of the past few weeks. Ms. Evelyn Reyes, school committee's representative from the Boston Student Advisory Council, who will graduate from the John D. O'Brien School this spring, made these important comments. So I wanted to start by sharing that a couple of weeks ago, um, the superintendent sent me a link to an article and the subject line of that email was what if and um, it was a link to an article about what we can do sort of to, to not as the vice chair said return to normal um, and move on to something else something better and i've been thinking well since i got that email i've been thinking a lot about it but especially within these last two weeks um, it has taken a different lens in my mind and it also makes me think about the campaign that BSAC participates in every year with Dignity in Schools um, and one of the years that we did that, I think it was last year, the campaign name was Counselors Not Cops. Um, so really like what are we you know, the Minneapolis school, uh, public schools recently decided to cut their contract with the, um, the MPD and reinvest that money in supports for their young people. And that's obviously a, a big step. I think their contract is $1.1 million. Um, and so hopefully they'll be able to put more counselors and more mental health supports and more of what their students need in their schools. And so I'm wondering, you know, why will we do that? Can we do that? Because we should do that. Um, I think there are a lot of supports systems for our students that are missing. And those are things that we can have, you know, those are not, those are not out of reach um, for us. And I think that we don't need officers or uniformed people in our schools. It's not necessary. Metal detectors at the doors are not necessary if students have the right supports. Um, and if school, you know, school is seen as a safe haven for a lot of people. But what what's the message if when students get there, they're being criminalized? And then the superintendent opened with her report. Ross, let's talk about the highlights. Sure, thanks, Jill. Um, so the superintendent spoke a, a, a lot about uh, the death of George Floyd and the opportunity that it brings to the school system to think deeply about how we're solving for inequities uh, within the Boston Public Schools. As you know, the superintendent is from Minneapolis. And so the death of, of George Floyd uh, at the hands of a police officer in Minneapolis um, hit very close to home for the superintendent. Um, her team, the superintendent and her team have curated and published a number of cultural curriculum and resources. They've held affinity groups with school leaders. Um, they've published best practices. And they're holding a parent event on June 11th 
um, to discuss uh, the current state uh, um, of, of inequities in the school system and provide resources for, for parents and students. Um, so the superintendent was very clear that she wants to lean into this work um, and enact anti-racist policies and create a more equal education for students in Boston Public Schools. Uh, the superintendent also noted um, the death of George Cox, who's been a, a longtime BPS educator. And I used to work with George. Um, and uh, I remember George fondly from back in the days of what we call the Center for Leadership Development. And George um, he was a quiet um, but incredibly insightful man who led a lot of work um, uh, for, um, for years around um, ensuring Black educators' voices were heard and that we were hiring and supporting teachers of color in our school system. And so George will really be missed. Uh, the superintendent also talked a lot about Carolyn Kane, who is stepping down from her role as chair uh, of the Special Education Parent Advisory Committee. Um, Carolyn's voice has been incredible uh, throughout the years uh, to ensure that the school system was meeting the needs of students with disabilities. Um, and she pushed very hard on the school system. I hope she continues to do so. Um, the superintendent also noted um, that this is the 50th anniversary of the Pride Parade, or would have been in Boston, um, right. and, and that uh, one of her first memories was walking in the Pride Parade with, with fellow um, Boston Public Schools educators, um, and, and she was looking forward to that, or she's looking forward to that next year. Yeah. Uh, she also mentioned um, that we'll, we will be celebrating Juneteenth in uh, Boston Public Schools, and that more information will be coming out on that. Um, and then lastly, or not lastly, but a few more uh, items of note, the superintendent talked about the data sharing work. Um, we've talked about this in, in many of our podcasts um, where students and parents have come out concerned about student information being shared with police. Uh, the work group started two days ago. Um, and so the superintendent has engaged that work group and they'll be meeting weekly to come up with a new policy. Superintendent also talked about 800,000 meals being served through um, for Boston families uh, through the school system, mm -hmm. uh, and that they've done about, uh, of those 800,000, about 300,000 have been door-to-door -door, um, meals delivered. Uh, there is no information at this time on summer distribution sites, but that should be forthcoming soon. And the superintendent also announced that the summer learning plan would also be coming soon. I should note that this feels very late. Um, we've noted you know, that the school year ends in, in about a week, um, and there is no information about any summer learning opportunities for families in Boston um, or where they're gonna be able to get food. Uh, so that's highly concerning, and, and we, should, uh, we should all be highly concerned about summer for our students. Um, the superintendent noted that the mayor announced 8,000 youth job opportunities this summer, uh, and she noted that there's more jobs and applicants at this time, um, I, you know, I think there's a, a general question of how is that information being getting out to students? Right. Um, I certainly haven't seen any information around summer opportunities for my own kids. Um, so I, I think we should make sure that the school system in the city get this information out as soon as it's finalized and, and have a really robust plan for how to communicate that to every family in Boston, because um, I think there's a lack, complete lack of information. Yeah, our um, youth need it. I mean, I, I don't think any of them just want to be hanging out in their homes or in their front yards all summer long. That's right. Um, just a couple other notes here, Jill. Their, their virtual graduation uh, will be held uh, on WCVB at 7.30 yep. on Saturday. And this will be a, a celebration of the Boston Public Schools graduates. Um, 
And, uh, you know, completely absent from the superintendent's report was a mention of MassCorp. Uh, so if you remember, Jill, the last, yeah, last meeting, week, yeah. um, last time, you know, the, the committee had asked for uh, more data on MassCorp, including where every school was uh, in their goal to get to MassCorp. Right. Um, and uh, the school system said that they had that data and it'd be easy just to come back and present it to the committee. Uh, but there was no mention of, of MassCorp. Um, one of the interesting things about this is, is in the MOU with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, it calls on the school system to adopt MassCore by June of 2020, um, which is now. So it, it's interesting that that was missing, and um, huh. it, I don't I don't know what what's going on uh, with MassCore, but it seems like something that we should certainly be moving towards very you know as soon as possible to ensure our students are prepared for life success. Wait, so that, that requires a school committee vote, correct? It's a policy change for graduation requirements, so it requires a, a committee vote. So and so unless they have an emergency meeting, that next school committee meeting is after that deadline. Well, uh, but I believe the next meeting, this was not noted last night, but I believe there is a meeting on the books for June 24th. Um, okay, which but is, didn't which you just say June 20th? June 2020. Oh, June 2020. We okay. So as long as it's set by the end of the uh, of the month, got it. Right. So we may see it at the next school committee meeting. Right. Okay. Um, and the last thing, Jill, uh, is, is, is what was absent um, was any communication around school leader changes. Uh, this has come up a few times where um, I, I guess it was a few meetings ago. There was a number of school leader changes made made in the district. The superintendent said she was going to come back to the committee with those changes to, to sort of tell everybody what the changes were and what leaders are going to be at which school. Um, and we haven't heard that information yet at a school committee meeting. At a school committee meeting, but we ha have heard buzzing about the fact that school leaders have moved, have been moved to um, different roles. Lots of buzzing and no official communication. Interesting. All right. So what, what did school committee members have to say after her report? Um, I, I mean, I think there was, there was some, um, general conversation about what was happening with supporting students to get into summer school. And that really what this is the most, most of the conversation uh, where especially Ms. Robinson was asking, how are, are we giving teachers the information about summer programs? Um, are we encouraging teachers to reach out to students and provide them that information? Um, and, you know, given the fact that we haven't engaged a large number of students in, in virtual learning now, how do we expect those same students to log in for the summer? What's right. the value proposition here? So the superintendent um, noted that she was also concerned about the same thing um, and that the school system would try to be, put together a, a plan for how to reach out to families um, and how to help them figure out where to register for summer programming. Still really inadequate, um, in, in, my, in my personal opinion, Joe, this was an inadequate response and students need and families need to know what options there are for summer now and how to enroll now. Um, and this can't, this, we cannot waste um, the summer uh, um, and not have students know what the opportunities are for them. Now, I, I mean, I, you know, you and I are both parents and we talk to lots of parents and I think this is the most con confusing summer ever because we generally know what the path is gonna look like for summer. We also, we, we end the year kind of knowing where our kids are. And um, I mean, I think all of us have big questions about how much our kids learned over the last semester. Um, and 
you know, and so you really like to, to not then also have any guidance about where they can go to um, potentially make up for, prepare for, make up for the last semester, prepare for the next one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got to put a lot of parents in a very difficult place. So the evening moved on then to public comment, and there are 16 individuals with comments and questions for the committee. These included a call to remove police from BPS schools and increased ethnic studies in our schools by Sociedad Latina students. There was discussion about the lack of supports from parents advocating for their children and their children's peers and advocacy for a Vietnamese dual language program. And there was more. Ross, we heard from Director of Boston Education Justice Alliance, Ruby Reyes. Yeah, so, so um, Ruby Reyes uh, speaks at most school committee meetings during public comments, and we wanted to play a quote um, from Ms. Reyes uh, about her view of, of how the school system is uh, communicating and engaging with families in decision making. The world seems to be turning upside down, and BPS seems to be falling in a similar path. BPS has continued a top-down decision-making and lack of transparency model that feeds inequity. The announcement of the principal headmaster shuffle, including Madison Park, Charlestown High, Brighton High, and the McKinley schools, have would produce having a principal suddenly disappear, which dramatically impacts an entire school community. Parents and educators were not informed, much less involved in selecting the new school leaders. So clearly, Ms. Reyes is noting that families haven't been engaged uh, appropriately in um, helping to decide on who's going to be leaders of their schools for the coming year. Um, she also made this one comment that I, that I want to uh, play for, for everybody. Bulldozing through decisions does not cultivate trust. It's one of the goals of the strategic plan. So Ms. Reyes is saying here, look, you got to stop bulldozing through decisions. Um, and, if, and if creating trust amongst communities is one of the key goals of the strategic plan, um, we have to do a better job of that. And, and I think Ms. Reyes uh, on this comment was, was right on. Um, you know, communication is a clear part of, of uh, the school system's responsibility with all the families, teachers, and community members across the city. And uh, we have to do a better job of communicating key decisions. Yeah, yeah, because it, it definitely we are hear, hearing rumblings of that, that there's just a lot of different moves being made without clarity. Um, after public comment, Nate Cooter, the CFO for BPS, gave a budget update where he talked about the financial impact of COVID-19. Ross, what do you think we should be paying attention to in this presentation? So Jill, we, we've talked about this um, ever since BPS approved their budget a few months ago, um, that we were wondering if there would be any pivoting from their budget um, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and what we heard uh, in the short answer of that is no, that the same budget that was prepared by the, or was prepared by the, and voted on the, by the committee um, is the same one that is before the city council now for, for their hearings and the council will vote on that budget. So there's been no change to the budget given the COVID uh, crisis. Um, it's, it's been noted that um, the, the city will still have an $80 million budget increase next year. We've been hearing from other districts around the state that there'll be budget cuts, but that is not the case in Boston Public Schools. Um, and, and we will move forward with an $80 million budget increase. Um, the school system did note that they have increased costs with 
the pandemic and, and there will be increased costs with reopening schools, uh, but they believe they'll be able to deal with those costs um, from some of the um, in, in their budget. Um, and they've also said they've been able to save substantial amount of money this past year that will support summer programs going forward. Um, so, uh, you know, it looks it looks pretty pretty much like BPS is is uh, going ahead with with all of the investments they have made um, previously, and, and there's been no changes. One thing that I found to be curious, Jill, was um, was some of the 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 costs that the school system said they they occurred incurred. Yeah. Um, one was um, 5.8 million for Chromebooks. Um, this is a little unclear to me because I know that the city had reached out to a number of people to help fund uh, paying for Chromebooks and raised a few million dollars actually to right. pay for the Chromebooks. And this appears that the school system paid for all the Chromebooks themselves. So that's a little bit unclear to me. It also looks like there was uh, about $1.5 million of unused food, um, yeah. which is really unfortunate to, to have thrown out food when we're in a food um, insecurity crisis. And so I'm wondering where that $1.5 million worth of food went and hopefully it went to people in need. Right. Um, but otherwise, the, you know, the, the rest of the conversation was was mostly about, um, you know, the 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 school system thinking through how they're going to reopen. There's a lot of unanswered questions. There was more of just a, a discussion around possibilities of how to reopen. Um, but one thing that was, was very clear throughout the presentation was that, was that there is a unprecedented uh, investment in the Boston Public Schools, and that the budget would not be impacted next year. One thing that was made clear, Jill, was that the school system is moving forward uh, with their budget and the uh, the large investment that the city is making in the public school system. Let's play a quote from CFO Nate Cooter um, about this investment. As Chairman Lacanto mentioned, BPS is very heartened that the city is mitigating cuts in FY21, knowing that other city departments are receiving cuts. And we've uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't know in the news and the globe, we've seen many articles about other school districts that are laying off teachers, putting in furloughs in place. We are revisiting our needs of how COVID will impact decisions around transportation and student enrollment, but the city is maintaining the $80 million commitment. So as you can see, the city is moving forward with an $80 million increase in the budget for BPS next year. Um, and we'll continue to uh, pay close attention to the impacts of COVID-19 on the on the budget and the reopening um, and we should hear more about that at the july meeting yeah and i think ever i mean it seems like you know guidance is still in flux and there's so many unknowns still it's a really tricky one to navigate um so ross i found the second report of the evening really interesting uh including i didn't i didn't know this that 50 percent of our students um do not speak english as their first language and about a third of our students are english language learners that's way more than I thought. Um, can you summarize the highlights of the report? I thought the report was really fascinating. Sure, Jill, the, um, the report is um, was given by the ELL task force. And the task force it consists of longtime Boston educators who are experts in um, working with English language learners. Um, yeah. These are university professors, former principals, former pol uh, state politicians, they're just they're the cream of the crop of of experts who work really closely together on making recommendations each year to the Boston Public Schools about how to better meet the needs of English language learners in the school system. So you've heard um, from these uh, this group of 
really amazing women before, I guess, then. Yes, yes. And each year, the task force uh, makes, makes um, a presentation around this time. Okay. Um, and they make some points. And let me just, uh, you know, let me um, summarize some of the points that they make. Um, on the data, they're, English language learners with disabilities have the mm -hmm. lowest performance outcomes of all students across Boston Public Schools. Um, there's, there's very little reliable access to native language supports for those students. About a third of students with disabilities are also English language learners. Graduation rates are lower for students, for English language learners, and the majority are not on grade level. Um, this committee basically works really hard to recognize and promote BPS as a multilingual, multicultural district. They want to promote and monitor progress towards BPS in which all departments and schools assume responsibilities for English language learners, not just the English language learner department. And essentially, they monitor and assess and advocate for policies for English language learners. The, the, key, the key here is um, they, they noted a couple of key problems. One is that some English language learners are in classrooms with teachers who don't speak their um, native language. Right. Some English language learners are in classrooms with peers who speak another native language. So right. there's multiple languages spoken in one classroom with a teacher who may or may not speak any of those languages. And you know, overall, there's a lack of teachers that we have in our school system that reflect the linguistic diversity of the students who are being served. The, the um, presenters noted that the school system has to take on some major challenges. They didn't really note very clearly sort of why we haven't taken on these challenges over the past 10 years. Um, but yeah. There's murmurings of, you know, this may be because of collective bargaining and the union's unwillingness to, to make changes, but they didn't really come out clearly to say that. Um, but clearly, Jill, here we have a few of these problems. One, we have an assignment problem where many families want their student to go to a particular school, even if that uh, school does not offer language programming for their child. So mm -hmm. uh, that we have an assignment issue, and that assignment issue needs to be dealt with by providing um, more native language, dual language programs in every neighborhood across the Boston Public Schools. So parents don't have to make the choice between the school they want close to home and the language program that their child may need. How, how do you pick the dual language, though? Like which language? We have to look, I mean, so, so we opened up a, um, uh, a Creole program uh, it, at the Mattahan School because mm -hmm. there is a large Creole-speaking population in Mattapan. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, so we have to place programs, and this came up in the meeting last night, we have to be really clear and, and systematic about where we place language programs so that they're meeting the needs of the families close to, closest to their homes, um, and, and we need more dual language programs, period. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you heard, you noted this, Jill, in the public comment, where parents were saying, we want a Vietnamese dual right. language program um, in K2, right. and, sorry, sorry, starting in kindergarten. Um, so you, you hear from more and more parents that they want both. They want high quality programs close to home that are dual language programs. Um, the other- And it, is that hard to do or is that just, that has to be a part of a strategy and, and it's gotta be mapped across the city and then implemented? You got, Cause you gotta hire against that too, I would imagine. Right. So, so the, the, it does take commitment. It does take follow through um, and, and a real desire to do this. And, and to your point about hiring, um, we, we do need policies where we require teachers and paraprofessionals to speak the language uh, of the classroom that they're in. Um, and right now, seniority rules have it so that teachers can choose classrooms 
not based on language uh, need, but by their seniority preferences. So um, this is why there were rumblings of collective bargaining being part of the resistance to implementing these strategies. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So this places further pressure on human capital, and not only higher teachers um, that are uh, reflect the racial and cultural diversity of the students that we serve, but also the language diversity of the students in our school system. Um, I'd like to play a quote from Ms. Reyes about this, where, where she asked this question about why don't we have more teachers who represent the language um, diversity of the students we serve. Right. In the future on the report that the district will be giving um, on the 24th, I would love to see sort of what barriers the district has identified in this work and why it's been so moving on this end. And then also sort of what incentives are offered for teachers that have or the multilingual or bilingual or you know whatever it may be teachers um looking for them and sort of where we like how do we get more teachers that speak more languages than just english like what is sorry i'm a little confounded here i just don't Clearly, Ms. Reyes is saying she's confused as to why we are not um, fully meeting the needs of our students and hiring more linguistically diverse teachers. Um, let's play a quote from the superintendent to answer uh, Ms. Reyes's question. This is an area where, you know, we believe that our next teachers are sitting right in our classrooms. And I believe we need to start growing our own with over 50% of our students speaking languages other than English and having the understanding of the BPS and Boston community, we need to be investing in our students and getting um, School to Pipeline teachers uh, program. We already have um, a high school program doing that, but we need to expand on that. And so I'm looking forward to that, um, Evelyn. So clearly the superintendent here is noting that we need to invest in the long term and, and have more of our students, since many of our students speak multiple languages, um, enter into the teaching profession in the future. Yeah, but oh, I, I have to say, I, I was taken aback there because, you know, Ms. Reyes asked a very clear question, right? And and there's nuances in the answer. And to simply say, well, we're going to grow a new, you know, group of teachers, that, which, you know, kind of evolve over the next 10 years is... Um, it, a, long, a long play. Yeah, it's a long, it's a, yes, it's a long game for sure. It wasn't, I don't think it was only we who noticed that though. Uh, go ahead and keep going. I know you have another quote you want to play. Right. So former rep uh, St. Floor speaks about this and, and really challenges uh, the superintendent's response here. Let's play this quote. We wanted to do, um, say we had a dearth in science and math teachers. We then began to take a look at professionals that could be retooled in order right. to teach. There are plenty of professionals who are non who are non English speakers in various ways. So as a as a, while we wait for the amazing young crop of students that we're going to grow out of the Boston Public School experience, which is great. What are we doing and really are doing the outreach um, to existing um, set of professionals that we have um, in order to help them retool and bring them into the school system? I mean. Are, this is an urgency and it's an equity issue mm -hmm. um, that has to be resolved. 
and um, and we have to go after it. So I agree with you, but it's a mindset that from top down has to have for that shift to happen, and it has to happen at the school levels. I'm sorry, but yeah. where you you've got to talk to your the leaders of your schools because you've got to part of equity is looking at identifying where the blocks are in your system. Clearly, clearly, you're addressing what we're saying. Um, go find the teachers. If you're a science teacher, you would go find them. Right. So go find teachers who speak languages um, that reflect the linguistic diversity of the students we're serving. So let me just ask you a quick question, because so is this is this happening in cities across the country, right, where there's there is a growing uh, population of students who speak another language? our ELL students, this is not just happening in Boston, I would imagine. No, but Jill, I mean, some, some cities across the country have been better prepared than others. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. So like, are others ahead of this and they were doing teacher training and hiring ahead of this to be prepared for this influx? Yeah, and, and clearly it's like higher ed institutions and teacher training programs had more developed and better developed um, training programs for those who um, we're linguistically diverse. I mean, we're, we are slow to the game in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, if you, if you follow the history of this, uh, we've been under court order. We've um, been under yeah. investigation for how we serve English language learners uh, in our city. And so, so this uh, has been a clear issue for the city in the past and it continues to be. So where do you think it'll go from here, given that every year this presentation is given? Is this is this year different than other years? Do you think? Um, I hope so, but I'm not overly confident that it'll be any different. Um, we will have a presentation from the English language learning department um, next school committee meeting, so in two weeks, and let's see if they name the the those things that are not supposed to be named. Um, what if let's see if they name the challenges that are that need to be faced and the trade-offs that need to happen. Yeah. Um, and let's see if they get real about addressing this issue, um, or if they'll simply say the same things they said year after year, um, where there won't be any change that will happen. Right. Okay, so then uh, we moved on to the third report. The third report was the superintendent's self-evaluation. Russ, um, can you give us an overview of the comments from the school committee? Well, first, first I'd like to just, uh, you know, um, give a quick, uh, a quick overview of the superintendent's um, process here. So what the superintendent did is, is she created a self-evaluation based on some of the key standards in the superintendent evaluation process. Um, and the superintendent put a lot of thought in and, and was, you know, said that this is hard to do publicly to um, talk about yourself and, and how you're doing. Um, and so I commend her for even during this crisis taking the opportunity to do a self-assessment and to note um, her, her strengths in, in each of these areas that superintendents should be evaluated on. She, she went on to um, propose some SMART goals. These are uh, uh, specific, measurable, attainable goals that are time-bound. Um, and, and she uh, presented some of these goals to the committee um, for their, I guess, for their review. And then the committee will come back in July with feedback on uh, both her progress towards the goals and her progress towards the different parts the standards of evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of concerning items here, Jill. Um, number one, the SMART goals the superintendent presented were not measurable, not time bound. Let me give you some examples. The superintendent noted that her goals were increasing K-2 literacy rate for 
English language student. Um, there is not a time-bound nature of that. There's no specificity for that goal. She said she was going to decrease the percentage of Black and Latinx male students referred for special education, a very important goal as well. Um, but there's no numbers, no no clarity on how much she was going to decrease. Um, another example is, uh, of a goal that should be specific and measurable is effectiveness of inclusion student success. Um, again, no no specificities of this, um, no measurability, um, and no times on it. So these are not mm -hmm. smart goals. Um, we require our teachers and our principals to write smart goals in their evaluation process. And I would hope that the committee um, requests the superintendent re rewrite these to reflect um, uh, goals that could be measured. Right, and I would imagine it's uh, the time frame is a year, right? The, the the superintendent is evaluated annually, isn't she? Yes. But so, so then, right? So we need to know um, where we are now and where we need where we want to be in a year. Right. I mean, so the the, um, the committee also noted a few times that they they were considering even waiving the superintendent's evaluation process this year, uh, yeah. given the pandemic. And I, I would say, like the the school is one of the most important things they do is evaluate the superintendent. Um, and to say that they're going to, um, the superintendent's working incredibly hard. I mean, she knows how, you know, the long hours and all the work that's going on in the school system. Um, so she should, you know, be evaluated on that. And, and um, so I'm not sure why the committee is interested or, or was expressing, you know, a, a belief that they should be holding off on her evaluation. Um, in fact, this should be an important evaluation, and she should take credit for all the great things that, that she's doing in the school system. Um, but also, more importantly, Jill, the, the school committee needs to model for the rest of the school system that the evaluation process is important and legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I think this is a good start. I'm glad the school committee has, has this as a report where the superintendent makes her self-assessment public. Um, this has been done with previous superintendents. Uh, I would recommend that the, um, the superintendent rewrite her goals so, so that they are SMART goals. Um, mm -hmm. And then there was a couple of questions about the process. And so um, I want to start with Dr. Rivera, who um, made a comment about data collection and what data should be used in the superintendent's evaluation process. So is there any, um, like any role for um, for like school leaders to contribute to the evaluation? Dr. Rivera here is, is basically saying, hey, you know, what about principal's voice in evaluation or what other data should we be collecting? Um, and I think this is a really important part of this where it's not just the school committee's um, opinion about how the superintendent is doing, but the school committee needs to be collecting data from those in the school system um, and artifacts. And this is what principals do for teachers and all our evaluators do this, they collect evidence. Um, so I'd encourage the committee to follow Dr. Rivera's lead, uh, or, or sorry, follow Dr. Rivera's question and collect evidence towards the superintendent's evaluation. And Mr. O'Neill goes on to make a point that yes, this can be done and should be done. And let's play the quote from Mr. O'Neill. We'll say to Dr. Rivera that our viewpoints are often formed by input from a variety of people in the community. That includes school leaders, teachers, parents, students, uh, community folks, et cetera. So, you know, I form my input not just on my own personal interaction with the superintendent, but also 
you know, input that I hear across the board. We're all very active in the city. And uh, um, so I assume your input would be informed by a variety of people. So Joe, what, what I would expect to see in the July meeting um, is a revision of the superintendent's goals so that we know that they're measurable and we can hold uh, the superintendent accountable for, to those goals. Um, I would hope to see school committee members come back um, with evidence that they've collected from those who work in the school system and other artifacts. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see if, if, if there's a robust conversation um, that the school committee can have about the superintendent's evaluation that can be a model for all employees in the school system. So I look forward to that uh, July meeting um, and, and to have a, a, a further update on the superintendent's evaluation. Right. Okay, so then finally there was uh, a fourth report, which was on transportation, which was, if I'm correct, last year, a $120 million budget item. Yes, um, the, one of the most, if not the most expensive transportation system of any school district in the country. Um, so, Joe, this report was a, um, an ask, essentially, of the school committee to renew Transdev, which has a series of one-year contracts. So BPS is coming back for their um, recommending a third year of re a renewal for the management company Transdev. Now, what is super clear about this, Jill, is that nobody is happy with Transdev. Nobody's happy with the response rate they get from them or how well they're managing the drivers and the buses. Um, but they are very clear that they're the least expensive transportation management company around. So basically what BPS is saying here is no one's happy with the service. Um, but because they're so inexpensive, we shouldn't go out to bid again. Because if we go out to bid again, um, we're expecting a very expensive or much more expensive con management contract. Um, so anyhow, this is the same conversation year after year. We're unhappy with our buses. We're unhappy with how well they're performing. We're unhappy with the management company. Uh, but yet we come back again and say, let's, let's go through it again. Um, because it may be less expensive than what the alternative would hold. Um, I want to play a, a quote here from... Uh, Dr. Coleman, who asked about this and about accountability of transdev. Um, I'm not clear if you could remind me what is, what do we have in the contract that will motivate the company to meet these metrics when we when we are when we're already stating that it'd be very hard for us to move away from them. So, what's their motivation to improve that's built into the contract? I would like to play another quote from Operating Officer Sam DePina in response to Dr. Coleman's question. I mean, quite simply, just uh, maintaining the contract, right? So, poor performance, um, uh, if if it continues, not continues, if if it doesn't improve, that um, you know, we just would issue another RP later later on down the line, and um, renewing the extension now gives us the flexibility to reissue the RFP as early as, you know, fall if we really need to. Fall. So we'll really be uh, holding them uh, uh, accountable um, and doing it regularly and swiftly enough to make those uh, choices uh, in the fall. So Jill, what's concerning here um, is that there is actually no accountability we're going to have for Transdev, that mm -hmm. Transdev knows they're sort of locked into the contract. Um, there is no incentive for them to do better. Um, and I think the only response that the school system has come up with is that we're going to hire somebody to hold them more accountable. Um, 
which is a truly confusing to me since you know anybody can hold them accountable. But now we're gonna we're gonna invest in a separate position in the school department to solely hold hold TransDev accountable, even though TransDev knows that there's no way we're gonna go out to bid again for a contract because they are so inexpensive. So there you have it. That's our transportation system for for next year. And um, when we go and complain about on-time buses and so on, let's refer back to this conversation. The decision was made here last night. Okay. Well, I think that is a wrap. Thank you for listening to last night at school committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.